And I want to call your attention now to Paul's epistle to the Colossians, the second chapter. And our reading will be in verses 13 and 15. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The word of the Lord says, When you were dead in your your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate as debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would give us to see who You are. That we would see You as high and lifted up and as one who reigns in love. Help us to behold Your glory. We ask for the sake of Your Son's name. Amen. Now, what is it that comes to your mind when you think of God the Father? When one says, Father, the Father, where does your mind go? What do you think of? Do you merely see Him as the one who inhabits the storm cloud hovering over Mount Sinai? Do you merely perceive Him as the one whose voice is like the, ro- the rumbling of many waters, whose face no man can see and live. Is he majesty, exaltation to you, but nothing else? That's the experience of many Christians. They see the Father only as a righteous, powerful, exalted judge. They see him as one who is detached, ruling in a lofty throne. In his uh, classic book, The Holiness of God, uh, if you ever read it by R.C. Sproul, he confesses there that during uh, his early Christian life, he looked at the Father as one who was, quote, shrouded in mystery. He says, the Father was hidden, he was hidden, he was an enigma to my mind and a stranger to my soul. A dark veil covered his face. And that is, again, the experience of many believers as they begin to get to know the God of the Scriptures. It means that we have to spend some time, significant times in the, in the Scriptures, letting the Bible inform us as to how it is that we ought to see God the Father. Because the truth is that He is more than just a righteous judge He is more than just a lofty and exalted ruler. He is also a zealous God. Now by zealous, I mean specifically that He burns with love for His children. He is resolved to bring them to Himself when they have left Him, regardless of the cost. Isaiah 37, when Isaiah uh, in that chapter speaks of the future salvation of the holy remnant of the Jews, which were chosen of the Father, he says, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. In other words, even against all odds, this will be fulfilled because 
the zealous one, the father, the zealous one, the one who burns with love for his chosen ones, has put his mind to that salvation. Then in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17, it says, And and he saw, speaking of God the Father, that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, that would be the Messiah, then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with a zeal, or with zeal as a mantle. In other words, God loved His own with such passion that He took it upon Himself to ensure that they would be brought to Him, that they would be saved. That is who God the Father is, a Savior. That is exactly what this passage in front of us tells us about the Father. So this passage that we just read speaks of the Father as one who ensures the complete, the utter salvation of His people. He frees them from death. He frees them from guilt. He frees them from their enemies. He frees them from death. He frees them from guilt. He frees them from their enemies. Now, the first part of verse 13 here speaks to the truth that the Father frees His people from death. Look at verse 13 here. It says, When you were dead in your, tres- in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. So, notice the state of unbelief here, the state of the one who is outside of Christ, is, as is often done, is being described here as deadness. You were dead. Now, to be sure... This is one of many descriptions used to express the condition of the one who is without God. I mean, unbelievers are described in the Bible precisely as without God, or as deaf, or as blind, or as prisoners, or or as enemies. Nevertheless, deadness, that is the description of the unbeliever that stands above all of them as the most appropriate. All of the other descriptions are simply subservient to that one. After all, that one is the first one that was given in Scripture. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Make sure you keep your finger there in our text in Colossians. But turn to Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. It says there, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That is the first mention of death in the Bible. God promised Adam that if he should eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then that he would die. And notice how emphatic the promise is. You will surely die. To die, you will die, says the the Hebrew there. Very emphatic. Now, obviously, uh, that is precisely the promise that Satan, the deceiver, will come after. Turn over to... Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from, the tr- from any of the tree of the garden. Notice the switch there. He had said, You may eat from all of them except one. And he says, Did he say not to eat from any of them? Casting doubt, casting shade on God's character. Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Or you will die. What does the serpent say? Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Notice he uses the same kind of intensity to deny the promise that God had made. God said, you will surely die. Satan says, you surely will not die. Now, what's interesting really about this, and perhaps even confusing, is that the moment when Adam and Eve eat of the tree is not the moment when they drop down into the floor. No, in fact, when they ate, it simply says, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they become aware of their nakedness. They make coverings for themselves. They hear the Lord and they hide from Him. Hardly the actions of dead people. And when the, when the Lord finally speaks of Adam going back to the dust, even then, He doesn't make him go back to the dust that very day. He, he doesn't take His physical life away from him on that day. Look down at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust shall re- you shall return. That's the curse. You say, okay, what happened to the promise that on the day that they ate, they would die? In fact, you might even ask it this way. Was the devil right? Why didn't Adam and Eve simply drop down when they ate the fruit? I believe that, yeah. Now, but, but here's, the, here's the catch. The reality is that they did not um, drop down that day. Yes? Because the, the Holy Spirit left them. Okay. They had, they had the walking and knowing of God, but after that they didn't have Okay, them. yes. Good. Yeah, and, and um, here's what I would add. Uh, when they disobeyed, up to that moment, they had been immortal people, right? They could not die. Uh, there was nothing about their bodies that was imperfect. Death itself was not in them, right? They were not growing old. They were not in the process of dying. But in sinning, there was an immediate, an immediate physical change in them. They became mortal. They suffered Death. They suffered a kind of death. They got into the process of going back to the dust. Now it's true that what happened was that God extended their death. 
into a matter of years, right? Their bodies did not end up on the grave on that very day because they, did, they were not aware of this. But in the back of all of this, in eternity, the Son of God had taken to become the sponsor, the, the, the representative of humanity. And He had promised to pay the debt of men. Therefore, God extends that process of dying so that the Son can come and save. So, again, the process of dying itself is extended, and that gives man an opportunity to be reconciled to, to God before the culmination of that process. So, you can say that even physically, Adam went through a kind of death, became a mortal being. Nevertheless, more important than that, and this is exactly what you said, Oda, that it, there is, it is true that they died spiritually. The Spirit left them. They were no longer a beautiful temple of the Holy Spirit. They were severed from the life of God. And that is really what death is. Separation from God. And they experienced that separation immediately on the very day. So every son and daughter of Adam... Is a dead thing. Man in his natural state cannot comprehend spiritual realities. He's spiritually dead. He cannot see or understand that which is of the Spirit. And the Colossians, going back to our text here, as Paul says, they had been dead. Dead in their transgressions, as it says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, it's interesting that the word transgression here, that is a synonym for sin. Sin meaning missing the mark. But transgression actually describes the sin as an intentional offense. A transgressor is not someone who committed a mistake. No, a transgressor is one who deliberately broke the divine law. That's what every sinner is. The world, by the way, li likes to speak of lawbreakers as victims. You're a victim. Everybody is a victim. And yet, Scripture describes all of us as transgressors, as offenders. You're a transgressor. That's what the Colossians had been. They had violated the law and they had no hope of salvation in themselves. In fact, notice Paul says here that they were dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh. Now, what, what was so wrong about not being circumcised, you might ask? What was so wrong about not being physically, uncircum uh, physically circumcised? And that is that it showed that they were not in covenant with God. Paul is telling the Colossians here that they did not have the covenant sign in their bodies like the Israelites did. In other words, they were Gentiles lost in the world without hope. The fact that they did not have circumcision just showed visibly that they did not have a covenant with the covenant God. They had no hope. And yet, he's saying here that even... In that state of uncircumcision of the flesh. He says, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us 
all our transgressions. Now, to be sure, the antecedent of he here is God the Father. God the Father made the Colossians alive together with Christ. And of course, this is speaking of the resurrection. The moment Jesus rose from the grave was the moment that all of his people also had their own resurrection secured. In other words, because the Lord Jesus rose from the grave, the elect of the Father could now, on the one hand, receive the gift of the new birth. They could be reborn spiritually. And on the other hand, because the Lord Jesus rose from the grave, they also became entitled to a resurrection body of their own. If the head had risen, then the body was sure to follow. And Paul's point here is that this was all the Father's doing. He's focusing on the Father here. The Father is the author of Christ's resurrection and ours. Now, is it true that you can say that the Son is the life-giving Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? Is it true that the Son Himself gives life? And the answer to that is, of course, you can say that, because the actions of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit are the actions of one God. The work of God is never divided. But each person accomplishes that work of God in his own way. So whereas the Son gives life in that He lived a life, for a perfect life for all of us who would ever believe. And if, and if the Son gives life in that He offers a payment at the cross that ensures that we ourselves will live. The Father, on the other hand, He gives life in that He devises a plan to make us come alive. He sends His Son to ensure that we will be made alive. So the Father is actually... As the architect of redemption, He is actually the fountain of resurrection life. He is the starting point. He tackles the problem of death for you. He makes you alive in His Son. And He does that, of course, without you asking or doing anything. After all, dead people cannot ask. Dead people cannot talk. Dead people cannot save themselves. They are dead so you could not ask the Father from the heart to give you the new birth. You could not do anything for yourself to get yourself into the kingdom. You were dead. Now if anything, this should have a humbling, very humbling effect in your life. Your salvation does not spring out of anything that you ever did. You did not do anything. You only sinned and then you received a salvation from the Father. And in the same way, the rest of the Christian life is one of receiving. You can't do anything apart from God's grace. So, if anything, this should make us not only humble, but it should also make us depend on Him more to seek God about every issue of life, no matter how small, because He is the author of your life. And therefore, you ought to live that life in His light. Now, uh, that is the first point, that the Father has done away with death. But there's something else that the Father has done away with, and that is your guilt. So the Father does away with death, and He also does away with guilt. Uh, and that is, uh, notice, uh, the second part of verse 13. Verse 13 again, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, the verbs... 
to become alive here and to forgive are actually put in such a way here in the Greek. It's, a, it's an aorist main verb with an aorist participle that suggests that those two things are happening simultaneously. In other words, the moment you were made alive was also the moment in which all, notice it says here, all your transgressions, not just some, but all were forgiven. So when Jesus rose from the grave, not only did all who believe come to life, but they were also forgiven. Now, is this to say that the elect are born saved? Is this to say that you don't ever need to ask for forgiveness because I was forgiven 2,000 years ago when Christ rose from the grave? And the answer, of course, is no. Paul talks, in fact, about us being children of wrath until the moment that we were justified, right? So what he's saying here, he's talking about things that pertain to the mind of God. In the mind of God... In the eternal mind of God who sees things outside of time, you came to life the moment Jesus came to life. In the mind of God, you were forgiven when Jesus rose from the grave. But in reality, of course, in the actual playing out of redemption, in what happens in time, those things still need to be applied, right? There is a moment in time when you need to be born again, when the Spirit comes to you and infuses a new nature into you. And through that new nature that you've been given, now you can listen to the gospel. Now you can repent of your sins. And now you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul describes that forgiveness here with a little bit more detail in verse 14. He says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, uh, the verb to cancel here is actually a very intense expression. It means to wipe away or to blot out. And what is the thing being blotted out here? Well, actually, this is one of those phrases that every translation, if you start reading through them, uh, renders it a little bit differently. Although they do mean to say the same thing. So, for example, the NASB here says, The certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us. The ESV, on the other hand, says, The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And the King James, for example, says, The handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now, if you want to put the Greek very literally, like crassly literally, it would say the handwriting of dogmas against us, which was hostile to us. That, uh, that expression, the handwriting, which the King James actually uses, uh, is translate, translated into our version, into the, in the NASB as the certificate of debt or record of debt. And that is translated that way, handwriting as certificate of debt. Because in the Greco-Roman world, when you borrowed money from someone, you would sign an official document written by hand, therefore a handwriting. And by that document, you acknowledge that you had taken that debt so that a person would give you money, would lend money to you. You would write saying, I received this money. And if you ever not paid, then that handwriting could be used against you in a court of law. In other words, a handwriting was an IOU, right? But in this case, the IOU is not of money, of course, but of, as I said, dogmas, 
or decrees or ordinances. What does that mean? Well, what are the decrees he's talking about here? The word dogma is, uh, uh, by definition, a formalized set of rules or commandments. Notice these are not opinions, they're not suggestions. These are laws handed, handed down by an authority figure. And what laws would that be? What would Paul be talking about? Well, we could say the Mosaic Law, Ephesians 2.15, refers actually to the entire Mosaic Law as dogma. But Paul is really talking to Gentiles here who had not been under the Mosaic legal system, at least for the most part. So for that reason, he has to really be referring to, to natural law. The law that is written in your heart, in the heart of every person, whether Jew or Gentile, and which was best summarized, although slightly adapted to meet the specific situation of the Israelites, in the Ten Commandments. Every man or woman has something akin to the Ten Commandments inside of him by birth. And he has sinned against that law. Paul says in Romans 2 verses 14 through 16, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In other words, although some people lived their entire lives and still do today without ever receiving a law from heaven the way that Israel did then the way that the church does today in the scriptures, uh, without ever receiving a law from heaven, like the law of Moses, their behavior still shows that they were each born with an inner sense of right and wrong. And by virtue of being image bearers, they were each born with a compass that told them, generally speaking, what God wanted from them. And yet... Paul says in Romans 1 that they still suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They still did what was wrong. And so, as Paul says here, even in Romans, their consciences accused them. They had an inner sense that they were falling short of the glory of God. If you are some uh, person in a far-off land who has never seen a Bible, you still have a guilty conscience. But that's why here in Colossians it says... It's, it says that the handwriting of dogmas against us was hostile to it, or was hostile to us. It was constantly assaulting us, a guilty conscience saying, you have broken the law, you have broken it, you were falling short. Even as a Gentile who had never heard of the God of Israel, you would have constantly had a witness against you inside of you. So... All of us know that we are guilty from birth. And yet, that record, Paul says, has been cancelled and then taken out of the way. So two amazing things have happened here. It has cancelled and it has been taken out of the way. Verse 14, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, that expression here, Taking it out of the way literally means in the Greek, taking it out of the middle, taking it away from the middle, 
So don't miss again who's doing the action. The picture is one of the Father. The Father who loves the people so much. And yet there is something standing in the middle of Him and that people. It is a certificate of debt. A legal document saying that He must remain separated from them because He is perfectly just and perfectly blameless and perfectly righteous and they are sinners. That legal document is standing right in the middle but He will not be separated from them. He will not endure not having them for Himself. So He solves the problem. And how does He solve that problem? It says here He nailed that certificate of debt to the cross. In other words, He satisfied it in the death of His Son. The moment Jesus died was the moment that all of your debt to the Father was wiped away and the Father Himself was freed up to have you for Himself eternally. So obviously the Father, as I mentioned at the beginning, is not some removed judge who needs to be convinced by a mediator to love men. No, but rather He's a loving Father who will not let even your sin get in the middle of Him having you eternally. He nails His own Son to a cross to have you. He squares off your debt by paying an infinite price, the price of His Son. Now, shouldn't that impact your daily life in a big way? I mean, think about it this way. Are you wondering whether God cares for you? Are you wondering whether He will provide for you? I mean, you have your needs. And, and some of them, you cannot see how those needs will be met. Can't see it. It's just a big need, and I can't see how I'm going to get past that one. And your temptation is going to be to doubt whether God will be faithful to you in meeting those needs. You wonder, does He really care? Is He there? And the answer that is found in this passage here is that the Father took away your sin at the highest cost to Himself in order to have you. He put His own dear Son on a cross to remove this massive debt out of the way so that you could be His. And do you think that He would not meet the rest of your needs? Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? I mean, here's the universe. I gave you my Son. So God paid the highest price for you already. And for that reason, you have no valid reason to think that He will not meet any other much lesser need. He defeated death for you. He took away your guilt. And here's a third and final one. In the death of Christ, not only does the Father do away with death and guilt, He also does away with your enemies. He also does away with your enemies. Paul says here in verse 15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, we have said before that whenever you see a cluster of titles, like rulers and authorities, or thrones, dominions, principalities, etc., the New Testament is referring really to angelic creatures. But they're presented through multiple titles. 
And that is to suggest that they are organized, that they have a set structure. We do not know exactly what that structure looks like, but they are organized. And there are greater angels and lesser angels. And so there are rulers and authorities in this case. And uh, these titles, of course, apply, as we said uh, back in chapter 1, to both good angels and bad angels, to elect angels or fallen angels. But in this case, it's clear that Paul's talking about evil angels. Some try to argue that he's talking about good angels, but the language that follows of putting these creatures to open shame and triumphing over them obviously militates against that. So these are evil angels, which means that the title rulers and authorities, those titles, apply to them, if you think about it, in even a deeper sense. It's appropriate of them in an even even deeper sense, and that is this. They exert a tyrannical rule over over the souls of men. They reign over the world. How? What is it that's... The stick, what's the stick that they use to subdue men and women? Well, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, to lifelong slavery. In other words, the chief weapon that Satan and his angels have is called the fear of death. The fear of death. That is their scepter. As long as you don't know that you have hope beyond this world, as long as you don't know that you have life beyond this world, the devil can get you to do whatever he wants. As long as you continue to think that this life is all that there is, you are Satan's. However, the text says here that the father disarmed the devil and his angels. And he did that, of course, through the resurrection of his son. Christ's resurrection was even the visible sign that all of his people were going to be saved. That was the trumpet blast that announced that the war had ended. That's why Paul talks about Uh, That moment, the moment when Christ rose from the grave and Satan was disarmed as making a public display of the wicked angels after having triumphed over them through Christ. Now, that word display here in verse 15 means disgrace. And the verb to triumph here actually is a very specific verb that refers to a uh, a triumphal procession. You know, when the Roman emperors uh, back in those days, when they came back home after a war, what they would do as conquering kings is that they would bring their enemies, their conquered, shackled enemies in procession behind them, displaying for everyone to see uh, that they had defeated the foe and here is the foe. So what Paul is talking about here is utter humiliation of Satan. Now, to be sure, uh, the old Roman Catholic understanding of this passage is that there was a moment in which Jesus, after his burial, went down to a supposed place on the outskirts of hell called Limbo. Limbo. And there he grabbed all of the Old Testament saints who were waiting in that place and brought them up to heaven 
with Him. And that is the triumphant procession. That is what it entailed. That's the Roman Catholic position. The problem with that, first and foremost, is that according to the, this text, the ones who are being paraded around are not the saints. No, but rather, it's the evil forces that are in procession here. It says He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Or having led them around in a shameful procession as He's conquered enemies through Christ. In other words, there's nothing about Old Testament saints being led up anywhere here. The text is talking about the humiliation of satanic forces. Although, and this is maybe here as a footnote, um, it is true, or perhaps it's true, that the Old Testament saints were, a, were in a different place before Christ's resurrection than they are now after Christ's resurrection. It's possible that that's true. After all, um, Luke 16 talks about Abraham's bosom, a place that was above that hellish place where the rich man was at death, and a place where there could be some communication, some back and forth between Abraham and the rich man. And actually, Hebrews 10.19 says that the Lord inaugurated for us a new and living way at His ascension. And chapter 11, verse 16 of Hebrews talks about the Old Testament saints desiring a heavenly country. So it is likely that the Old Testament saints stayed in a different place until the resurrection than the place they are in now. But even if that were the case, that would have been a place of comfort and rest. Lazarus, you remember in Luke 16, he was being comforted. He was in bliss in the Father's presence. So this is certainly not some Roman Catholic limbo uh, that is actually a kind of prison where there is no pleasure. There is no bliss. No, uh, that was back then a version of paradise. But again, the reference here, going back to our text, is not to that. But rather, this is simply talking about the humiliation and the defeat that Satan and his angels suffered at the resurrection. You say, okay, how were they precisely humiliated? What is it about the resurrection that made them publicly ashamed and displayed them really as fools, defeated fools? Well, think about it. Satan put all of his energy in accomplishing the death of Christ. He moved the Sanhedrin to seek his execution. He entered into Judas to betray him. He used the chief priests to move the crowds to get them to cry out for Christ's blood. The Lord Jesus, in fact, spoke of his passion as the hour and the power of darkness. So Satan was behind this crucifixion full force and yet it is precisely by the death of Christ that he himself is defeated therefore his resurrection is a humiliation in every sense of the word Satan is shown as a fool the father wins through the death and the resurrection of Christ and in doing so he puts away your enemies. Now here's a lesson that you can take from this. If your heavenly father has so humiliated and vanquished your enemy, 
then your life should reflect that. I mean, if you love the world and you live in sin, you actually deny with your deeds that the devil has been defeated. So, we need to pursue holiness. But also, this should also motivate you to continue waging spiritual warfare. Because the enemy that you are contending against is a defeated foe. He's very angry, very loud, but he's defeated. So when you're praying and watching, when you're engaging in ministry, evangelizing, you're fighting against an enemy that has been defeated. And the Father has done that. The Father has done away with death, with guilt, and with your enemies. And that means that He is again far more than a detached judge. He is far more than the one who hovers over the mountain at Horeb. No, He is love. He's burning love. He will overcome all things to have His people for Himself. And He did. And so He Himself is title that Paul gives Him. God our Savior. He is the one in whose light we will walk eternally. Let's pray. We do thank you, our great Father, for who you are. We worship you. We are so thankful that you have saved us. And we pray that you would give us to draw near, to come boldly to your throne of grace, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid our penalty and that you sent him, that you loved us before the foundation of the world and you gave your son so that we would be yours eternally. Please bless the rest of our evening, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.